Antioch kids, you can be dismissed to go to your classes. You are sent. Well, it's unfortunate that the cordless or the, uh, the mic around my head didn't work. I was going to be very animated this morning <laughs> during my sermon, but sorry, you're going to miss out. So thank you for joining us on this special Sending Sunday. So in honor of the occasion, I'm going to preach on the motivation for taking the gospel to the nations. But rather than take a more traditional route from the Great Commission in Matthew or from the amazing stories in the book of Acts, I'm going to preach from a psalm. But not just any psalm, we're going to look this morning at Psalm 51, which was written by David after his sin with Bathsheba. If you aren't familiar with the story of David and Bathsheba, let me summarize it for you. David his king of Israel, stays back in the palace rather than go out to battle with his army. In his idleness, he sees Bathsheba, a married woman, bathing on the roof. He sends for her and sleeps with her and gets her pregnant. Then, to cover up his infidelity, he has her husband killed and takes Bathsheba as his wife. He would have gotten away with it, but Nathan the prophet exposes his sin, and it is after his sin is brought to life that David writes Psalm 51. So I know what you're probably thinking, how in the world could this psalm have anything to do with missions? Well, let's read it together and see. If you'll please stand with me for the reading of God's word. Psalm 51. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth, in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness, Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. 
you would not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in right sacrifices and burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. Church, the Lord has spoken to us. Let's say this together. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. So you may have noticed while we read the psalm that there is a movement within it. And I believe that this movement is what motivates us to share the gospel with our neighbors and also to the world. There is an image that has stuck with me as I've prepared these past few weeks, and it's a photo of what I call the impossible tree. I'll have this picture up periodically this morning, but keep it in your mind as we go through. I'll have three points this morning. The roots of repentance, the branches of praise, and the seeds of the gospel. Let's look back at the impossible tree. Notice the roots of the tree, or more specifically, what they are rooted in. A tree, or any plant for that matter, has no business rooting in the inhospitable cracks of a rocky cliff. The wind is constant, and there's little to no soil to soak up moisture to provide nourishment to the tree. Likewise, when we look to root Psalm 51 within the story of David and Bathsheba, there is an incompatibility between David's high position and the grievousness of his sin and the response to that sin that we see in the psalm. David has, depending on how graciously you view the incident, either abused his authority to get with Bathsheba or outright raped her. If this weren't bad enough, he then proceeds to try and cover up the crime, ending in the murder of Bathsheba's husband. Now, when I try to imagine a man responding with brokenness and contrition after committing atrocities like these, there's only one scenario that fits. It's a man facing his execution. A man stripped of any power and authority with nothing else to lose. But David does not fit that description. He is still the king. There is no one else in the whole kingdom that he answers to. He still has all the power. For a man who rules all the land, there is no upside for him to take responsibility for his actions. You know the formula from politicians of our day, deny, deflect, and for anyone who objects, off with their head. So I'm sure when Nathan the prophet confronted him, the tension would have been palpable. Nathan isn't just confronting David's actions. He is challenging the absoluteness of his authority. So let's look back to the story in 2 Samuel 12, where Nathan is confronting David. Nathan comes after him hard. And the Lord sent Nathan to David. He came to him and said to him, There were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. 
The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. And he brought it up, and it grew up with him and his children. It used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms, and it was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man, and he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die, and he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. Nathan said to David, You are the man. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel. And I delivered you out of the hand of Saul. So we see that Nathan is sucking David in by getting him involved in this story, stirring up his anger with this hypothetical rich man, and then brings down the hammer on him. You are the man. And then he continues with God's judgment on the house of David. So I can just imagine how the air was sucked out of the room. Everybody holding their breath, looking for something to hide behind. We already know how this story ends. So it's easy to imagine as David just being grateful for Nathan's rebuke. Everybody hugging it out when everything was made right. But we only have to look to the books of the Kings later in the Old Testament to see that it almost never goes well for a prophet who confronts a king. So Nathan has taken his life into his hands by bringing this word against David. How will David respond? The seed of God's word has fallen into the rocky crag of David's heart. What's going to happen to it? Let's look back at 2 Samuel. David responds, I have sinned against the Lord. Let the beauty of that sink in for a minute. The king, powerful over all the land, I have sinned against the Lord. The world would expect David to respond with wrath. Nathan, who do you think you are to question the king? I will do as I please. Off with your head. But something miraculous happens. The seed of God's word takes root. and David repents. Let's look back to Psalm 51. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned. And done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. You see how it jumps to life once you read it along with the the story of David and Bathsheba. 
So David looks at the stony ground of his sinful heart and he sees it for what it is. It is hideous and ugly to look at and it has been that way from the beginning. So this psalm becomes difficult when we realize that we are no better off than David. But to my knowledge, no one here has killed off a friend and taken their spouse as his own or her own. But I do know this about each and every one of you. The depths of your sin are hideous and ugly to look at. Mine are too. And this is both the beauty and the pain of following Jesus, that the more we get to know him, the more we realize how short we fall, how devious and deceitful our sinful hearts are. Our capacity for selfishness and rebellion is staggering. But thanks be to God for the roots of repentance that thrive in such rocky soil as our hearts. He does not leave us under the crushing weight of our sin. So in the psalm, David asked of God, back to Psalm 51, Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. David sees the depths of his sinful heart and he begs God for a new one. He doesn't ask God to change his circumstances, to remove his shame, or even to keep him in power. He asks for a new heart. That is repentance. Roots finding purchase in stony ground. Life where it did not seem possible. So what is the point of this new life? These repentant roots merging together into the tree of new life. The branches of praise. Let's look again at the movement of Psalm 51. We have gone from the depths of David's sin to the renewed heart of repentance. And we pick back up in verse 13. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation. And my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. So David essentially equates this renewing of heart with the opening of his mouth and the loosing of his tongue. The natural outflow of his repentance and restoration is praise. This is what we were created for, church, to get a new heart in right relationship with God and to overflow with praise to him. There is no other proper response for what he has done for us. To experience repentance and a renewed heart is to praise God. They are inextricably linked. Salvation without worship is no salvation at all. And a renewed heart without praise is not a renewed heart. 
So is this the end of the movement in the psalm? You're probably saying, I thought this was going to be a mission sermon. Where are you going with this? Well, let's go back to the image of the tree. The what is hinted at, but not explicit in this picture, is the seed that the tree had to come from. It had to come from another tree. So we'll move now to the third and final point, the seed of the gospel. David hints at this theme in Psalm 51. Let's look at verse 13 again. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. Right there alongside David's praise is his desire to see other sinners find repentance, and therefore to see them praising God. If the repentance that birthed worship didn't result in the desire for that worship to spread, the Bible would be a very short book. God does not want the praise that results from just one impossible tree. He wants an entire forest. We can see this desire for worship of God to spread more fully in Psalm 67. The psalm says, May God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face to shine upon us, that your way may be known on earth, your saving power among all nations. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy. For you judge the peoples with equity and guide the nations upon earth. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. The earth has yielded its increase. God, our God, shall bless us. God shall bless us. Let all the ends of the earth fear him. There we see it. The seeds of repentance carried onto the winds into the stony ground of the nations, taking root, growing up and resulting in praise, and then repeated again and again and again until all the peoples of the earth praise him. So that sounds nice in theory, but how does this work out in practice? How are those seeds carried to the stony ground? Romans 10:14 says, "How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news." So that's me and that's you from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the ends of the earth, from Louisville to the Middle East. So what does obedience look like for us this morning in light of this? Well, for some of you, you need to start at the beginning. Your heart has grown hard and you are stuck in your sin. You need to repent. Maybe you've never acknowledged your sin and ask God for mercy. Or maybe you have followed Jesus for a long time, but have strayed back into old habits. If that is you this morning, I would encourage you to come talk to one of the pastors in the back during communion.
and to turn from your sin and to turn back to God. For others, you're skipping the step of praise. You think that you must share the gospel with others because you are a bad Christian if you don't. Brothers and sisters, this is an affront to the message of the gospel. Guilt and shame are never a motivation for the Christian acts. I would encourage you to pray along with David in this psalm. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. Ask God to fill you with the wonder of who he is and what he has done for you. For some, you love praising and worshiping God, but it does not result in sharing the good news of Jesus with anyone else. Your worship is about you and your feels. But the beauty of sharing the gospel from a heart that is praising God is, it's not about you. You see something that you love and you're excited about and you naturally want to tell others about it. So I would encourage you to pray that your worship would not be a selfish exercise, but that God would so captivate you that you can't help but share who he is and what he has done with others. Lastly, some of you should consider going to the ends of the earth. Now, going to the hard places won't make you a special Christian. It won't get you more favor with God. Your weaknesses will not leave you, and you won't suddenly become closer to God. It is a hard road to choose. But going is the means that God has ordained for the gospel to reach and his glory to fill the end of the earth. And somebody has to go. But James and Andrea have answered that call. And maybe some of the rest of you need to answer that call as well. So as you consider this morning what obedience looks like for you, I'd like you to imagine something with me. First, I'd like to imagine in your mind the person who you know who seems the most hardened to the gospel. It might be a coworker, a family, a friend, someone who it just seems impossible that they would repent and believe. Have you got that person in your mind? Now I'd like for you to imagine that person weeping tears of repentance, broken over their sin, and raising their hands in praise to God. Church, do you believe that God can do that? Do you believe it? Next, I'd like you to imagine a person in another country and culture who seems impossible for God to reach. Maybe it's a robed Arab with an AK-47 slung over their shoulder with hatred in their eyes. Or maybe it's a Buddhist monk in a trance high upon a Himalayan mountain. Maybe it's an Eastern European youth brought up in the shadow of godless communism. Picture them for a moment. Now, imagine those people praising God, along with dozens of their countrymen, singing in their language with a light of gospel joy in their eyes. Church, God can do it. He is doing it all around the world. And he can and he will use us to do it. If we can loose our tongues 
and open our lips to tell of his greatness. Now let's imagine one more thing together as we close. Those people we pictured before, the one near who you know, and the other far off in another culture, gathered around the feasting table at the marriage supper of the Lamb, breaking bread together and telling stories of the greatness of God. So this morning we get a foretaste of that as we celebrate the Lord's Supper. The repentance and the praise that we have experienced and that we share is only possible through Jesus' death and his resurrection, which we remember each week through the act of eating bread and drinking wine. The church, on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took a loaf of bread. And after blessing it, he gave it to his disciples and said, this is my body broken for you. Eat this in remembrance of me. Likewise, he took a cup of wine and said, this is the cup of the new covenant. As often as you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you do so in remembrance of me and proclaim the Lord's death as he comes. Church, this morning, we proclaim that God can do it, that God is at work, and that he can and he will loose our tongues and our lips in praise for him and in sharing the good news with our neighbor. So um, as we uh, partake in communion, it's our custom here to come to the middle aisle, come forward, to take a piece of bread, to dip it in the juice, to take it back to your seat along the outside. There'll be gluten-free communion on your left. If you're a baptized believer this morning, we'd invite you to come and partake. But if you are not a believer, this meal is not for you. We would rather you come and take what this meal represents, that you would take Jesus. And encourage you to come and talk to us in the back about that. There'll be pastors in the back for pray for any need. Church, let's pray. Father, we thank you for your work among us. Father, we thank you for the roots of repentance. Father, we thank you for the branches of praise. Father, we thank you for the worship that you work in our hearts. And Father, we thank you for the work that you are doing among the nations, calling a people to yourself. Father, we love you. We thank you for how you use us, how you involve us in this. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.